I think that if you're a true organizer, then celebrity is never going to be on the table for you. I think a lot of people mm. are saying they're organizers, but they're actually people wanting celebrity. And I think that when you put those type of people in a room with people who actually do give a damn about community's issues and they're trying to push them, then it's going to be a problem. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. So this week, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, some of its most prominent figures, and how they have come under fire for what some see as an approach to activism that compromises the movement's core goals. To do that, we're talking with two journalists who've closely followed the movement, Ernest Owens and Shamira Ibrahim. Why are we seeing dissension in the ranks of organizations deemed to be at the forefront of the movement? Is the pursuit of celebrity inherently at odds with true activism? Don't go nowhere. We are getting into it after the break. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When Black Lives Matter began to form in the earliest days of the movement, it was intentionally a bit amorphous. It was recognizing that there were many organizations on the ground doing the work of advocating for Black lives. But as the movement grew, it became a necessity to formalize its organization and structure. And throughout all of this time, there have been questions about its leadership, infrastructure, how funds are being used, and most importantly, the people we've seen rise through the ranks to become quote-unquote, the face of the movement. When New York Magazine decided to take a look back at the past 10 years since the death of Trayvon Martin, two organizations in particular were called into question. The Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation and Campaign Zero. Reading the Campaign Zero piece, the rise and rupture of Campaign Zero really lingered with us and brought up some questions that we've seen whispered about but not given much attention by mainstream publications and media. So just a bit of backstory. Campaign Zero was established by DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnick Cunningham, Janetta Elzey, and Sam Sinyangwe in 2014, just a year after the events in Ferguson. Their main aim was to push for policy reform in regards to policing. But according to the piece, policy reform took a backstage to notoriety for the group's most visible leader, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, whose knack for garnering media attention, connecting his large following to events and protests on the ground, and communicating policy, DeRay became one of a few de facto faces of Black Lives Matter. Over the next few years, the organization raised over $40 million, launched an infamous campaign called Eight Can't Wait, and Brittany, 
Janetta and Sam left the organization. After reading the article, we had a lot of questions. So we decided to reach out to the writer of the piece, Ernest Owens, to give us more insight into Campaign Zero, how he came to the story, and why it matters. Let's jump right into that conversation. Here's Ernest. I kind of fell into the story um, in a way that was unexpected. So New York Magazine wanted me to be a part of this commemorative um, package, which is the front cover of New York Magazine with the image of Trayvon Martin. It's been 10 years since his death in Mm -hmm. 2012. And New York Magazine wanted to commemorate what has happened in the past decade. Mm -hmm. And Campaign Zero um, is an organization that has grown since Ferguson, was started because of what happened in Ferguson Mm -hmm. in, in 2014. And you know, they were an important part of the conversation because you have Black Lives Matter, Global Network, mm-hmm. you have all these other groups, but Campaign Zero was the reform arm um, in its own right that really, you know, galvanized people in a way that was sent around policy and, 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 and things. They were supposed to be like the alternative that politicians and folks would follow because they had the plan, quote unquote. Mm. Um you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, was, you know, the movement and the, and the people representing a lot of that group were abolitionists. They're people mm-hmm. who don't support, you know, police reform in that kind of way. And for people who are moderates and centrists that are in the Democratic Party or in the political sphere, they really saw Campaign Zero as their respectable, safe bet on trying to create reform measures that abolitionists weren't here for. Um, so I followed this, um, I've, I've followed it for years, but when this opportunity came, um, it happened around the same time that for the past year I'd been hearing, um, in 2021 that Janetta and Sam had left. I knew that Brittany had left in 2020 when this eight can't wait campaign, um, kind of blew up in everyone's face around, um, the 2020 George Floyd protests. And I said to myself, I did the math. There's four co-founders. Brittany left in 2020. Sam and Janetta left. D-Ray is the only one that's still there. What is going on? Do a lot of people know this? And if they don't, they probably should. An organization with that much money Mm. has four co-founders and three out of four of them left. And there's only one person left running an organization that has $40 million in the bank. I think we should figure out what's going on here. So that's what really inspired me to um, write that st- write that story. But also, I felt like it was important to include this in the package. Mm. Um, it was my idea to have this particular story. Initially, I was just assigned to just cover fallback among certain activists. Mm-hmm. It was very vague. Um, there was a reference to a time many years ago when Janetta, Sean King... And D-Ray had a Twitter spat many years ago. And so there was a miseducation, I think, that mm-hmm. some of the people who I was speaking with about this story initially had, which is that they didn't really understand the difference between Black Lives Matter global network organizers, Campaign Zero people, and then others who were just circulating around like Sean King. He floats around. He he doesn't belong to either of these two organizations. And also, there was a miseducation about what these groups represented. 
So we always use the banner Black Lives Matter activists. But within Black Lives Matter, the movement, there are segments of different groups who have different opinions. There are some that lean abolitionist, and there are others who lean reform. Mm -hmm. And it's important to know those distinctions because sometimes I believe that media who do not really cover protests or movements enough will paint a general stroke and disbelieve that because these people are all Black, they all have the same political ideology, Mm. which is not the case. And so that's kind of what happened when I came into this project. I saw that there were editors and certain people who did not understand these distinctions. So Mm -hmm. I did my own research and then said, hey, this is the story. If you want to cover a fallout, this is the fallout. Mm. And so I pursued it. I spoke to Janetta LZ, which people told me was was very impossible because she for a long time, did not talk to the press because she did not like how she was being mischaracterized and depicted. Um, but I reached out to her and, and and really said, you know what? I'm not them. I want to hear your story and I want to give it the same level of respect and attention to detail that your counterparts got. Was she the first person that you reached out to? Yes, she was the first person I reached out to. How did you start reaching out to the other three? Janetta helped me get to Sam. Mm -hmm. Um, because her and Sam still talk, Mm -hmm. as the story says. Um, I individually reached out to Brittany Packnett Cunningham, which she wouldn't speak to me on record. (laughs) Um, And then once I had them, which I had Sam and Janetta speak to me, then I went to D-Ray in a way that was simply, hey, there are some co-founders who have spoken to me on the record. Mm -hmm. There were concerns that they raised. And I wanted to talk to him about those concerns and about it because I knew that if I went to D-Ray first and how I was hearing it from other sources, that he was most likely not going to budge on talking if he didn't have the perception that other people were talking. Because for a long time, this group had a tight pack. Whatever drama and problems they had internally, it never was out publicly. I think one thing that feels important and to maybe come back to and and underscore is I I know practically there's no uh, direct tie, and correct me if I'm wrong, between Campaign Zero and uh, kind of more traditional Black Lives Matter groups. But talk to me a bit about just like how, like, again, what Campaign Zero was kind of aiming to do and how it fit into just that like landscape at the moment. Yeah, well, let's just start from the basics. What they all have in common was Ferguson. So all of the activists, you know, I look at it like affinity wars in a sense. Everybody came down to Ferguson. There were some people that were already in Ferguson, right? Janetta was already in Ferguson. She She's from St. Louis. She was, you know, Ferguson's not that far from St. Louis. She was already there. There were already activists on the ground that was already there. Black Lives Matter came through days later. Um, and some of my sources and some of the activists there and even been public that they felt like these individuals, you know, exploited the work and labor they did on the ground. Then you have a person like D-Ray who just came from Minneapolis and then linked up and met with um, Brittany Packnett Cunningham because they had a Teach teach in America, Teach for America connection. Mm-hmm. D-Ray was a Teach for America teacher. Brittany at that time was the St. Louis, like, executive director for Teach for America representing St. Louis. Janetta was being known because of her tweeting about what was happening at that time directly on the ground. And then Brittany, according to D-Ray and Janetta, Brittany had introduced them and connected them 
And the three of them began to connect and talk and a newsletter started to happen. And then G. Ray saw Sam, who was a tech whiz kid. He was a Stanford grad who was doing research on policing and all this for a while. He brought Sam into the mix. And then the four of them got together, created We the Profound, We the Protesters, which is basically the organization we now know as Campaign Zero. So this was all happening around the same time that Black Lives Matter had entered Ferguson and was also putting their own approach and spin to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what came out of Ferguson was the movement for Black Lives. Mm -hmm. And the movement for Black Lives has the Black Lives Matter Global Network and some other activist groups, and they all are um, rooted in abolition. They, you know, do not support prisons. They do not support jails. They are for reparations. They're anti-capitalist. They have a very core identity. That group is separate from what Campaign Zero represents. Campaign Zero is about police reform. Um, Campaign Zero, you know, creates policy and work with politicians to try to change that. The movement for Black Lives do not have that same philosophy. And so that that distinction feels the the kind of the the separation you point out it just feels really important like that there was a time right. where there were a bunch of there were activists who were kind of leading the story in the media but the actual mm-hmm. groups themselves behind uh kind of behind that front facing uh presence that we I think a lot of us saw uh there were many disparate groups with disparate aims it's important for people to know that these activists weren't unclear on what their identities were the media was and that shaped how they were being covered, and how there was sometimes conflation between them. Because when I spoke to Janetta uh, for this story, she would talk about how there would be people that would come up to her and ask her about Black Lives Matter's money, like the Black Lives Matter Global Network's money. Like, oh, well, you know, our chapter didn't get money. And Janetta's like, why are you telling me? Like, I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know, that her organization, what she do is different and at that time. So, it, it's it's been a lot of that confusion for some time, even with the the rhetoric. Like those, they'll, they'll look at um, Janetta or or um, D Ray and be like, "Oh, you know, well, how's that defund the police working out?" And it's like they didn't push for defund the police. Hmm. That wasn't a hashtag that they pushed. D Ray's about to go to you know Minneapolis right now to try to work with you know the disgraced mayor, you know Bray you know, over there, Frey over there, who is mm-hmm. around Amir Locke. He, if he was for defund the police, he wouldn't even be trying to have those conversations. But I digress. So, so I, I want to just come back to, to kind of come back to the, the article. I'm curious, like, what were some of the key moments in uh, Campaign Zero's journey um, that, that led to the dissent and ultimately, like, three of the founders actually leaving the organization? Like, like what happened to to this environment, to this org. I think there's two major years that stick out for me. 2016, which is the year that has been, it was a year after Campaign Zero had been established. Um, A lot of these activists were getting famous. And at this time, D-Ray's, like, identity was huge. I mean, he was on the front cover of magazines. He was on late night shows. He had all of this going on. You know, Janetta was, you know, there for that ride. She came on board and saw some things that she didn't like. She kind of felt like in the media and the press, he was taking up more credit than he should have for how he was involved in Ferguson. And she just started to feel erased. And at that time, she even noticed, and she has said to me that 
she was not being invited in certain meetings that was being had. So as a co-founder, she was not being in those meetings. Sam was not being in those meetings. It was basically Brittany and D-Ray going because arguably in the public eye, you know, Brittany was the very, you know, the Olivia Pope of sorts, right? Very glamorous and the professional and had the, you know, had the right, you know, cachet of respectability that appealed to the Obamas, to appeal to these different people um, and policymakers. And D-Ray was that, you know, giving you big, huge tech bro, big idea plan guy. But Sam was very much so into data. He wasn't really into the outward facing stuff. Um, Janetta was the community advocate that was going to keep it real and tell, keep it 100. But when you're like that, some people don't want that in the room because it challenges other things they might have. And, it, and I think for Janetta, she realized that those two individuals in particular, in her opinion, was prioritizing their own personal wants and self-interests above the collective. And that's when she left at the end of 2016. Um, and she she was the first to leave. She just mm-hmm. left. Now, 2020 is a big deal because that is when Eight Can't Wait campaign happens. George Floyd happens. It's important to note that before 2020, campaign zero didn't have really any money. Mm-hmm. They were not getting paid. None of these individuals were getting paid. They were making their money off of public speaking engagements, fellowships and grants and other things. But campaign right. zero as entity, they was only getting a, cu- a couple of dollars that they paid for a fellow, but they were not rolling in money. Campaign zero wasn't. Mm. So in 2020, that's when the money came because that's when everybody wanted to care about Black Lives again. Yeah. And what made them special compared to Black Lives Matter Global Network is that people was reminded that they were the policy arm. So people gave them money heavily because they saw them as the group that could get some policy changes. So they racked up over $40 million. That's a lot of money to get. In 2020, yes. That's a lot of money to get. That's a lot of money. So when A Can't Wait campaign happened, which was this really rushed you know, initiative that was supposed to campaign, that was supposed to um, push legislators and people to adopt these eight ways. And they thought that if you adopt these eight things, such includes no knocks and, and, and community policing and this type of stuff, that this would help, you know, drop the rate of excessive force by the police. It, it was a very lofty, bold initiative. And it backfired on social media in the public eye because some people felt like it was going against what the calls for defund the police and more abolitionist ideals were. People felt like this was a cooperative effort to silence some of the stronger arguments that activists on the ground was making during that time. A can't wait. You spent quite a bit of time talking about that in your piece. And um, it's interesting because it it felt to me like that whole debacle, is what Mm -hmm. I'll call it, it felt like that kind of crystallized a lot of the failures of camp of campaign zero. I want to I want to know from you, like, yeah, in what ways did eight can't wait really crystallize the failures of campaign zero? It kind of feels like that was almost like a case study that exactly that you could look at to understand sort of what failed across the board with campaign zero. Say more about that. They didn't read the room, and it just shows you, in many ways, the contradictions and failings of reform, right? Because at a time where people were asking for something more radical, here they come with solutions that many people argued were were tried, true, and failed. And this was an opportunity for some real serious cause for change to happen. 
And it was led and endorsed at that time by celebrities and famous people like Oprah Winfrey, yeah, Ariana Grande, and some it other politicians. It was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, people start pushing back on that data saying, hold up, this is not adding up. The presentation mm-hmm. was shallow in the sense that when you start unpacking what these eight things do, they literally have to all be applied for there to be some major drop compared to cities who don't have them at all. And again, it was one of those things where people were pushing this to try to get in the door. And so after this debacle, where D-Ray, according to Janetta, called her, reached out to her, and brought her back. And then she comes back, because her interest was that she said to me that she was there because this was something that she started. And she felt like, given what was happening, this could be an opportunity for her to, number one, see what's going on. But try to get things back on track. Hmm. So her and Sam begin to work together. But then there's some really wild changes. Because like I say, more money, more problems. D-Ray gets a board. They agree on a board. D-Ray pretty much, they say, stacked the board with his friends. He doesn't really, in the story, clarifies if they are or not his friends. But says that everyone had agreed to it. And so one of the things that stood out to me was that the chairperson of his board was his campaign manager from for 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 Baltimore. Mm. The campaign his campaign manager in Baltimore, his failed race is now the chairperson of Campaign Zero. And it is during this time that they vote D-Ray to be the executive director and then makes Janetta a director, but she's not executive director. She's one of the heads of community. And then they're trying to get Sam to be on staff, but this is an important detail because this is what leads to what happens afterwards. Sam read that contract and basically it said that any intellectual property or work that he was doing for Campaign Zero mm-hmm. will become Campaign Zero's. So mapping mm-hmm. police violence, all that data, all of that stuff that he did, if he would have signed a contract in the NDA with them, that would have became Campaign Zero. So that's something that like, we're kind of used to... <laughs> navigating like in our work contracts, right? Same. Like when you make something, this is my IP, I own it forever. That seems really unusual for like like an organization that's aim is like community organizing, police reform to want to own data. I, I, I don't know how it typically works, but it seems like that would be, I don't know, bringing up IP the same way that you would if you were writing a short story or, you know, Making a podcast or something like that. Something that might be commodified. Like yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Well, that's what, what was happening here. I mean, there wasn't that many statisticians doing the kind of work that Sam was doing. And this is what leads to the conflict that happens following this, this story was released. But Sam did not sign the contract. There was a lot of back and forth. They offered him more money. They offered him things. I saw all these emails and documents. And essentially, he didn't want to do it because he felt like, okay, you can easily kick me out. And then this stuff that I've worked on before I even became a part of Campaign Zero would be, be yours. And so that's what the fight is now based on that. So he never signed it. So, and because of those disputes, that's what got him ousted. He ended up severing ties with them. Janetta ended up getting fired um, shortly after she became in a position later in um, spring, early winter, spring 2021 is when everybody cut ties except for D-Ray. And can you say a bit more just about the circumstances that led to the firing? Basically, what happened is that once Janetta was hired, there was, you know, this, this, this culture of seeing her co-founder, now her boss. Janetta 
just felt like there was a lot of bad non-leadership practices. Like they were fighting about getting access to the board minutes. Um, they were disputing about how to create a, a code of conduct policy um, because there was nothing in place to deal with harassment she was experiencing from certain organizers. There were just a lot of things that were, they did not have in place to try to create this organization or try to formalize it that she just really was not feeling. And there was a lot of defiance across both sides to the point where she was not surprised that she was fired and given her marching orders. I just have to say, I saw a lot of chatter after this came out. And you had a thread on Twitter that mentioned uh, the reaction from D-Ray. Uh, oh, you, yeah. you said that you had heard uh, a recording where uh, D-Ray said that your, your feature was a hit piece. And that's something that you uh, clearly took kind of great issue with. If you could just kind of talk to us a bit about like how you understand D-Ray and uh, Campaign Zero, the organization, responded to the piece. Well, for starters, D-Ray didn't want the story to come out from the beginning. This is probably one of the first major stories in his entire career where he is being criticized and being you know, held accountable in a critical way for a mass media publication. And most of the time, he's always framed as the hero, as a savior, as a godsend. This story was a tough story to write. It was a tough story to report. Behind the scenes, he didn't want this story to happen. He was trying so many ways to try to discredit me from reporting the story. I was made aware that he spoke to people that was closely connected to my reporting to this story to try to get me not to cover it. People came back to me and was telling me that, hey, I'm hearing you, you're writing a story about D-Ray uh, that's negative. I had never told anyone that I was working on this story until this story came out. Hmm. The only people that knew was my editors and the sources. I felt some type of way because I told D-Ray directly that this was not a hit piece, that when I spoke to him, that this was an opportunity for him to address some of these concerns people had. It was a lot of off the record, off the record, off the record. And I'm thinking to myself, if you think that this can clear your name or to give more context, why would you say off the record? It seems like so much that is at the root of the fractures of Campaign Zero, but also specifically where um, D-Ray's relationships with the other three co-founders fractured. Although I can't really speak to Brittany Packett Cunningham. Right, she, right. she wasn't featured in the piece. Um, but it seems like a lot of it had to do with like pursuit of celebrity. And also, um, I, I also think that it's pretty evident <laughs> from looking around that like, I don't know, on one hand, you do see a lot of people who call themselves organizers who seem in pursuit of celebrity, but you also can see ways in which um, in a very noisy <laughs> um, like world, like that celebrity sometimes can seem in very simplistic terms, like a straight shot at getting yourself heard or getting your message out there. I wonder what does the fallout of campaign zero say about the role of celebrity in organizing today? I think that if you're a true organizer, then celebrity is never going to be on the table for you. I think a lot of people mm. are saying they're organizers, but they're actually people wanting celebrity. And I think that when you put those type of people in a room with people who actually do give a damn about community's issues and they're trying to push them, then it's going to be 
a problem. There's a question I think some, some folks struggle with. And I think it's, you know, in terms of, there's always kind of been this larger conversation around, quote unquote, who the leader of the movement is. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't engage that as much, but I do think that there can be some confusion around, uh, around people and potentially supporters and black people and supporters who are interested in learning more about uh, Black Lives Matter and the movement itself, not necessarily the organizations and the people we are presented with most often. And so I guess I'm just curious, like in this context where, you know, as you mentioned, as people are rising, that uh, speaks to their distance from the the on the ground organizing. I'm curious just how you think about how we identify who to trust uh, in terms of the work they're doing and their stature within the, the place of the movement. Agree. I think there needs to be some accountability for both parties, though. I think the media and the public at large is still addicted to a center, a center, like a Christ-like figure, a, mm. a, a, a messiah. And we have to push back on that. I think initially this movement these movements were supposed to be decentralized. And there's still people, I mean, even Oprah, right, who says, you know, I need to see a leader. We need to have leadership. There are people that still want that. Like, you know, we're all millennials here. We we probably have a different mindset about what we want. But we got to remember that our, our parents and our grandparents, they still like to see this type of hierarchical structure because that's what they've been used to. And the media wants a point of reference, a figurehead, because it gives it easier ability for them to have work or point accountability. And so even when people are trying not to be those things, we are always pigeon-toeing some people into them. And there are some people that embrace that and run with it, and we keep gassing them up as that, even when we shouldn't. Like, for example, Sean King. People keep trying to make Sean King something that he really isn't. Um, I think with D-Ray... Exactly. I think D-Ray is someone who clearly wanted to stand out. And because he was willing to just keep standing out, then people just gave him, knighted him with that title among circles, even though his work and his, his, his efforts in this movement does not reflect that accurately. But I think that that's become the problem. And it's also shaped by sexism, right? Like, it's very clear that people was waiting for a male to come into the picture Mm -hmm. when we had already seen women doing the work before. D-Ray stepped footing in in, in, in um, Ferguson. There was already black women who were already leading the call, but they never got the same type of respect or acknowledgement in the way that D-Ray did. And we see this happen consistently in in these spaces where there is always a desire to specifically see a man head of household, head of institution, head of state. And we're seeing that perpetuating this movement. And so what I think all of us should do is get closer to the people involved. So if you're looking at what's happening in Minneapolis, what are those Minneapolis activists saying? What are those groups saying? If you're looking at Ferguson, what was those Ferguson protesters saying? Mm. So we have to understand in movement work that there is no hierarchy of voices that we should listen to. We should be listening to people that are the closely, most directly impacted by whatever cause we're talking about. Okay, so a lot was said there. A lot was said, but it was still really great to talk to Ernest and hear more about the tensions behind the scenes at Campaign Zero. It it really speaks to this moment we're in where it feels like a lot of 
quote unquote, personal branding is happening. Like my activism is my brand. Right. It's kind of a weird dynamic between like celebrity, wealth, corporate interests, entertainment and activism all kind of clashing at once and feeling like they're headed for a cliff. I don't think it's too presumptuous to say that this is a theme we've seen in organizations across the country. And it feels pretty urgent to understand right now we're seeing broad pushback on many of the goals and messaging coming out of movement work. Everything from defund the police to voter enfranchisement to the demonization of critical race theory. How do we advocate for these policies and aims when there's brewing mistrust in these organizations and people deemed to be at the front? So to better understand this moment, we're going to talk to one of our faves, cultural writer and journalist Shamir Ibrahim, to get an idea of where this is all headed. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss this conversation. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome back. Welcome back. So as we mentioned before the break, our conversation with Ernest about the rise and fall of Campaign Zero answered some of our questions, but it also raised a few more. Namely, what should we be making of the failure of Campaign Zero? Or even things like the establishment of Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation co-founder, that's a, that's a mouthful, Patrice Cullors, her production company, Abolition LLC. It's coming at a time where there is more criticism than ever of the role of corporate interests and entertainment in activism work. To make sense of it all, we decided to call up reporter and culture writer Shamira Ibrahim. Shamira's incisive and prolific commentary on these issues, as well as her reporting on issues of immigration, police brutality, and politics, have been indispensable to her many followers, including the two of us. Shamira Ibrahim, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. We mentioned and we saw a few articles that called two specific Black Lives Matter affiliated groups into question. The Black Lives Matter Global Network and Campaign Zero. The articles mostly centered around how they are run and how they spent their money. And 
you know, whether that combination of things is helping causes, like, in their mission. I'm curious, to start, just, like, why do you think there are so many questions popping up around the fundraising and activism of some, like, star Black Lives Matter-affiliated activists and organizations? Well, there were always going to be questions, no matter what, right? Because people don't think Black people deserve money. So, like, there were, there were always going to be questions. Um, now, why there are questions around these organizations, of course, is because they've gotten very big, right? Mm-hmm. We were in the second iteration of another wave of movements, and they are they have de facto become visible around those movements. And people are looking to say, okay, what is the course of action around them? And the current chapters that have been associated with those organizations have been very visible and vocal to say, we are unhappy, right? So mm-hmm. it's not just the people who you can just displace and saying, oh, no, it's conservatives who are just going out of their way to be disruptive, or it's just people who are going out of their way to say something about politics. It's also people who are actually actively involved in building the work from the first movement who are saying, we have looked for support and we don't have any, right, Mm -hmm. on an infrastructure level. If organized on the ground are not necessarily doing that well, but we can see people who are the most visible Mm. very comfortably, like living very comfortably rather, that does, you know, bring up a level of inquiry, right? So what does that mean? What's the next step for, for that? Mm. Why, where's the fit gap here? Like, where's the documentation? How did we get mm-hmm. here? Mm. Where's the accountability mm. and transparency? Um, and so that's kind of how we get here. And usually those questions start to get asked a little bit too late mm. um, instead of asked at the beginning, right? So much of this, it feels like it boils down to uh, perceived personal pursuit of money and like maybe like not even power but like but like fame (laughs) and like the fame that people feel like they can get from being attached to a movement or being seen as the quote-unquote leader of a movement you know we've seen people who Mm -hmm. we came to know as on the ground activists achieve notoriety and become nonprofit leaders authors Mm -hmm. film producers as we know now through um such ventures as mm. Abolition LLC. They go on speaking tours. There are magazine covers, Met Gala photos. You know, we've seen them and, and more. Like, mm. It feels safe to say that, you know, there are some of these prominent, I suppose, organizers, and maybe we knew them, got to know them as organizers, that they've achieved a, a high level of celebrity. What about that is rubbing people the wrong way? I mean, I think it would rub a lot of survivors um, mothers of people who are of slain children to know that everybody is making millions off of my trauma, off of the dead mm-hmm. body of my child. Um, and I'm literally still grieving and not had anything close to any sort of remuneration, compensation, understanding of what justice would feel like for me or my community. Um, I think that would make a lot of people very, mm-hmm. very <laughs> um, unhappy, um, to say the least. I think um, when you also can compensate on the fact that it's that it's something that you like if you can think of it in a sense of derivative works right mm. a lot of people can then mm. extract things from because it's not just one person becoming the face of movement right it's like yeah. one person who then now other people mm. can report on right who then now other people can do panels off of who then other people can now write books about right mm. who other people can mm. now do research about right that is like millions upon six-figure book deals, upon other, you know, yeah. pieces of reporting, which then can mm-hmm. become a miniseries, right? That is an entire pipeline, which yeah. the person who is suffering is mm-hmm. not getting any of that, right? And there's still a dead body who's not, you know, seen any sort of justice or rest, right? So 
when you kind of quantify it in that way, it becomes exponentially more insulting. Um, and so that is kind of the material harm that people feel, right? And then when you can start to look at it legally, because that's when it starts to become, well, actually, I've never legally taken any funds from the organization, mm. right? It becomes, well, screw your organization legally. Like, you wouldn't be invited to that, you know, production deal if it wasn't for the fact that you were at that protest march on behalf of my son, right? Mm. So, yeah, I can't sue you for those funds, but do you think, you know wherever FX would let you come and be a consultant on that script if it wasn't for the fact that they think you're going to provide an equity, mm -hmm. you know, read or whatever on the script. Yeah. And that's that's where we start to get to level of resentment of like, is this a good faith or a bad faith mm. conversation, right? Mm. Um, and, and, and that's where it starts to bubble up to a level of rage where now people are not even talking to each other at the table. It's just, we're not even <laughs> approaching each other, right? It, that it's been severed. And I think that's what some of these conversations and some of these essays are trying to reconcile. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, when you put it like that, it's kind of hard to, it, yeah, it feels, feels very specific. And it's also interesting that the thing that kind of comes up is like the idea of like, it's not just sustaining them. Like to your point, we're seeing mm -hmm. folks create wealth. Like mm -hmm. we are seeing folks like really, you know, to a certain degree, like appearing rich, you know? Right. Uh, and I, I guess I'm curious, considering there's so much kind of money at play uh, in the like in the fundraising, you know, we saw like 2020 and, you know, 2021, like huge sums of money kind of pouring into right. kind of groups like this. I guess like I'm, I'm also curious, like how you think about the idea of like this space as like one where you could become wealthy, it's, yeah, it just... I mean, <laughs> it, it's nausea-inducing, of course, right? Like, just to think of it, right? Like, the idea of profiting off of, like, literal, like, not to be wrote about it, because, of course, this feels, like, overused these days, but the literal black body, right? You know, yeah. um, especially as a black person. But that, of course, is, is nausea-inducing for, for so many reasons. Um, but... I think on top of that, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of the people involved in these stories. And I think your takeaway from some of these people depends on what your presupposition is of these people, right? Mm. So if you're predisposed to assume that they were entered in, into this situation in 2011, 2012, you know, yes. I'm going to exploit the fuck out of dead black people that, you know, it kind of is easy to reinforce mm -hmm. that throughout the storyline, right? Oh, if you're yeah. predisposed to believe, you know, a road to hell is paved with good intentions, you can also reinforce that storyline with these same story beats, right? You know? Um, so I think it's a little bit easier to say this, the answer would be somewhere kind of probably closer in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where, you know, it's 2010, 2012, and 2014. You know, it's Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. A lot of really emotional people got very, very involved. Yeah. You never think it's going to get as big as it does. And then you don't want to admit that you cannot handle this, right? You know? Um, that would be my assumption. Again, that is my opinion, not based in fact. Do not sue me, <laughs> Campaign Zero. I do not have the money. But... <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, uh, just generally speaking, um, 
I think these are kind of a lot of the ways that um, these are the things that people are kind of walking through, right? Because yeah. it's hard to reconcile. Oh, no, you would just be a black person who would be so cruel to just see that as a way to make a dollar, right? Yeah. A way to actually just cannibalize, right? Um, your own community, right? For yeah. the sake of profit and for the sake of that level of, uh, you know, craven uh, fortune and that level of craven retention. Um, so for me, you know, I think that's the conversation that continues to, to be ongoing. Like how much bandwidth and grace do you give to say, there's a possibility that this is just something that went really, really wrong and people were not willing to admit it until way too late. Hmm. Um, and where do we give that space? I don't know. I don't know the answer for everybody else. Yeah. Um, and that's a collective question that, you know, we kind of have to, to embrace as a community. You know, I, I know we're talking specifically about, um, you know, this larger conversation that's been ongoing about the Black Lives Matter, like international organization mm-hmm. and, and Campaign Zero and, um, even people who just seem to be like loosely associated right. with those groups, but have gained prominence from similar talking points. I wonder, like you know, this like um, this almost like opportunity mm. flow. Yeah, talking about um, is how new is is this like a new thing? Is there a historical precedent for it? This is definitely not a new thing. So, like in the civil rights mm. movement, right? Um, there were people who were definitely making money in the civil rights movement. We're just like really heavy late stage capitalists, right? But like, if you think about the people who had to document the civil rights movement, right? You know, that was the professors, the academics, mm-hmm. right? The journalists, all those people who were profiting, the photographers, that industry that like those people, the artisans were the people who, I guess, if you want to call it the profiteers of the of the civil rights movement, right? But, you know, they were invested in mm-hmm. documenting it, right? And creating yeah. the art for it and preserving it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the actual people who were kind of the, you know, civil rights part of the civil rights movement weren't necessarily the ones who were actually like profiting from it in that respect. Um, so that's the part where it's a little bit different, where you don't necessarily go and create fundraisers in the same way that you can go ahead and create fundraisers as a cottage industry now, right? Um, now it's a little bit more mm-hmm. accepted where you can create like this compassion economy, right? Where mm-hmm. you can go and like kind of compete for the same pool of resources as you would compete with like, you know, um, like charities or you compete with, you know, adoption agencies, right? You're kind of creating the same like pity narrative to show like we're, you know, deserving in this pool because of what we're suffering and because what we've accomplished and we're entitled to this, right? And like kind of competing for empathy from white people, right? So that we can get this pool of funds, right? And it's like this really twisted way to like deserve the entitlement of, of, of white people's time so that you can get this funds, right? And they can feel like they have done mm. their part of altruism to continue this cycle of maintaining white supremacy, but still their level of, you know, we're still decent people, right? Um, and so that's kind of mm-hmm. the transference of that part of philanthropy work, right? Um, that is still considered part of organizing because it's operations, right? Um, and uh, so that's kind of how that is transformed in that respect. Um, uh, but there's always been a space of we have to keep the lights going. Certain people have to keep things moving, right? It, felt, it seemed like it felt more symbiotic. Like it's yeah. a little more like this thing, you know, yes, I am investing in myself um, as an arm of the movement. But what I am receiving, I am like is going back into, you know, the the organizations that, that desperately need it. 
Exactly. And I feel like there was a little bit more and, you know, again, from my from my limited knowledge and, um, you know, a little bit more transparency. And part of that is par- par- probably partially just because of the means of production. Right hmm. now, it's a little bit easier or a little bit more difficult to um, really do that. Right. You know, you can generate capital, you can generate things and like kind of mm. scroll it away a lot mm-hmm. easier. Right. And say like, this is what I'm entitled to. I've kind of created my own, you know, IP and this is, and this is my own, mm-hmm. you know, side project. Right. Yeah. And, and that becomes a whole other thing. Yeah. Right. You know, my, yeah. yeah. Just even the yeah. my of it all is really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, that's part of the squabble between, you know, Sam and, and campaign zero. Right. You mm-hmm. know, like, he, you know, he created a lot of the database. Right. And, and that's part of the 40 million valuation and you know part of the severance of it all is that you know he's the data analyst does that mean that he's entitled to all of this so on and so forth right and so if he spins off to a new entity and there's and they're in the separation who's demanding too much right who's the one who's being you know um uh, uh who's being obstinate in, in the conversation and the separation here right and so and 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 in that conversation you know considering it campaign zero is something that operates primarily in data is he demanding too much? I would probably yeah. say probably yeah. not, yeah. right? Yeah, man. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but that's that's for them to negotiate, right? You yeah. know, um, uh, but that those are the conversations that start to happen when you when you operate in such a you know in, in the current capacity that we do. Part of the reason why we even ended up in this quagmire, where we're like mm-hmm. parsing these really sometimes profane um, like moral questions, is, right. is because like. You know, throughout the Black Lives Matter movement, as we know it, we've heard many calls mm-hmm. from people, from Oprah right. to white people with open pockets right. <laughs> to whoever yeah. uh, right. looking for leadership. And so, you know, sometimes these people, mm-hmm. it, it, as you know, as we've discussed, some of these people have either been designated mm-hmm. or self-designated themselves as leaders or mm-hmm. faces of a movement. And, you know, often it feels like those calls for leadership or visible leadership are, are from Black people from an older generation or people from the political class. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just, you know, uh, people who want to, like, deny any cohesion to activism at work. How do you think about the calls for leadership within the movement? And it that has contributed to the conflicted space that many of the more prominent Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter associated figures occupy. I definitely think um, the calls for leadership were like the early, there was like an early level of skirmish, like, you know, when we were pushing back against the, you know, Al Sharptons and so on, like just to get quote unquote credit, if you want to say, or, you know, getting in front of the stage and understanding like this is a youth led movement, right? You know, we should be up in front Mm -hmm. saying how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I, which I think when, people were establishing those stakes, then, you know, that generation pushed back and said, well, if you want to be able to be in front, you have to then be able to, you know, have people Mm -hmm. to then stand in front, right? You know, which to some extent is a fair, you know, a fair ask and a fair call, right? Mm -hmm. Like who are your designated ambassadors, right? You know, who people call to the stage to be able to have these speaking points, right? and then, like filtering all that down, it became the people who it became, right? You know, and, and I don't, and, and I think to some to some extent, some people were like, "When did we make that vote?" I don't, <laughs> I don't know, you know, if if that is kind of the the final standing point. But I think some people feel that way, right? You're, you're recasting you know? <laughs> your ballot. 
<laughs> right. You know, when like, you hit that follow button, like, it was the same as pulling a lever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, but when you kind of go with that, then, you know, I think that doesn't necessarily imply building actual skills to lead things. Like mm. there were other things that happened in parallel, right? That then didn't necessarily think through like, do we have skills to lead and build movements in tandem, right? Yeah. Like one of the things that I thought through as I followed the stories of BLM and Campaign Zero mm. and all of that, right, is, you know, in all of the reports I've ever read about BLM, for example, right, you know, mm. there have been debates over, okay, when did um, Patrice become, uh, you know, the executive director? There have been debates about did she steal this money? Did When did the money come in, um, uh, you know, is she, uh, you know, was she really poor? All these things that she wanted to call so many rumors, right? You know, um, but, you know, I think um, one of the things that, you know, I don't think they've ever really investigated is like the years between 2012 and 2014, right? Mm -hmm. Which is when like BLM was supposed to be creating that foundation, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Infrastructure, yeah. Um, I'm like, what was that infrastructure, right? You know, what are those documents? What do they look like, you know? If you were to ask me, I would say probably my assumption is like not really that thorough because, you know, it probably was like a Tumblr, probably some mm -hmm. like basic materials, probably a Twitter account, a website, not necessarily something thorough. And the reason why I would say that is because, you know, at the time, because they just were firm in saying we were a Marxist organization decentralized and knowing how unseriously people took leftist ideals at the time, mm -hmm. right, when they were being interrogated, I don't think people were really seriously interrogating that and just said, oh, they're leaderless, they're decentralized, so they just run around and do nothing, right? As opposed to, like, there actually is a structure that that's supposed to be held accountable to, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's probably more of a conversation about, like, oh, there was supposed to be something there and there just wasn't, right? And that's probably mm -hmm. where the failure point was. Why wasn't anybody challenging them to do more as leaders, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think these are more of the interesting questions about, hey, even if they meant to do really well, they were not ever set up for success, right? Mm -hmm. How can we set organizations up for success at scale, right? How do organizations become successful at scale as grassroots organizations, right? Like, yeah. what makes them successful? To that end, how, like, how do we think about, quote-unquote, leadership? You know, like, how do we think about, like, you know, as, as things trickle to the national level, like, how, do we, how are we supposed to think about, with such a diverse representation of interests, what infrastructure maybe should be in place? Because, you know, if clearly the, 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 these kind of organizations have struggled to build that. I think the two easiest things that any organization should have is a clarity of purpose and a sense of transparency, right? On both organizations, um, that wasn't necessarily clear on mm -hmm. either one or both, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, clarity of purpose, meaning what's your use case? What's your objective? Like, what is your clear purpose? And not just liberate all Black people around the world. Like, believe me, I, I'm on my Solange. I love all my <laughs> niggas in the whole wide world. But like, you know, on a very clear, like, we are focused on doing X, Y, mm -hmm. by Z, right? You mm -hmm. know, like that clear thing, because we, as we have a lot of activist movements, there's a lot of different ways to target, you know, different points of, you know, Black civil rights, right? So, um, you know, if, you know, Campaign Zero is focused on policing in, you know, United States of America, fine, right? You know, if, whatever the case may be, right? Um, and then in doing that, 
then when you then look at transparency, the level of transparency is really just like, okay, what are we doing towards that, right? Mm -hmm. And then how have we done it, right? So that in any, you know, anybody can look online and say, oh yeah, this is where the money is, this is what the program is, whatever, right? It should be easy for anybody to know that. It shouldn't require somebody to file a FOIA request to figure that yeah. out, right? You yeah. know, um, that sort of level of mm. ease of access so that somebody can have a level of comfort. And of course, that doesn't mean someone should know down to the line item what you bought at CVS, but like yeah. it's just, you know, getting people to have a sense of understanding of like what somebody is doing. Now, what I think that, an organization as big as BLM could ever possibly do that on a manual basis? Yeah. Absolutely the hell not. They got yeah. like $20 million, right? But, you know, just thinking about like that level of, hey, we're just getting these assets. This is what we're doing. We appreciate this month. We're continuing to try to create good programming. We're, these are the movements we're trying to organize. These are the actions we're trying to engage in. These are objectives for the next mm -hmm. quarter, right? You know, so people could really understand, you know, these are the things we're trying to do. I want to do a pivot that I think feels very related. I want to talk about some tweets that you sent out and, and, and the questions I feel like they bring up. So the context that everybody needs is it is the State of the Union. And in the State of the Union, Joe Biden addresses defund the police in this way. Here's a clip. Community violence interruption, trusted messengers breaking the cycle of violence and trauma, and giving young people some hope. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. I ask Democrats and Republicans alike, to pass my budget and keep our neighborhoods safe. So, okay, the next day, you know, many Black folks, uh, organizers, activists, just anybody who had been kind of invested in the idea of defund, they were all kind of talking about this and reeling. You know, a lot of folks who were anti-defund were kind of dunking on it. And you, Shamira, you were tweeting, and I'm going to summarize some of this, so please correct me if I, if I get it wrong. Um, but basically, the conversation that kind of came out of this was saying that defund as a political initiative had lost. Mind you, even before the phrase became mainstream, folks weren't really talking about police funding, you know, and that's an accomplishment. But if we look at, like, the overall trajectory of what people were shooting for, you know, there's been a definitive clapback by everybody, basically, who is not an activist, the media, you know, political class. And you kind of touched on the fact that, like, you felt like this validated almost like a an, a distrust and what felt like a pretty extreme distrust um, that activists can have for the political class and uh, and the media and how, like, you know, the idea of a coalition of them working uh, together is supposed to work. Can you just, like, can you say a bit more for those who, you know, might not have been privy to that thread about, like, that distrust, where it comes from, and, like, why it might be running so high right now? Yeah, so um, the defund the police conversation um, is, like, pretty much a... It, it, well, it's a very disingenuous one. Um, for a lot of people, just in case you don't recall, the time it started happening was not long after um, mm -hmm. George Floyd, right? So mm -hmm. um, it was after George Floyd's murder, um, pretty much two days after when uh, 
everybody in Minneapolis sort of fucking yeah. shit up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and took over the precinct and set shit on fire. Like, and I mean, listen, Minneapolis has been through mm-hmm. it and done some. So, yeah. you know, there, you know, it, it's not any kind of surprise, um, you know, that things escalated the way that mm-hmm. they, that they, that it did, but clearly things had kind of gotten to a boiling point and all of a sudden real quote unquote conversations about, you know, yeah. let's look at, you know, really reallocating services. Let's look at beefing up social workers, which first of all, social workers and police, well, we can talk about mm-hmm. that later, right? But anyway, you know, um, uh, just like look at really thinking through better alternatives. These started becoming like really quick and really breezy talking points. All of a sudden it was yeah. defund the police conversations and having being flashpoints. And it really re- was only predominantly like Republicans being openly mm-hmm. advocating yeah. against it, right? And that was a really big flashpoint. There was like really heavy press around like Minneapolis starting, mm-hmm. you know, like a board and voting against like starting to actually defund the police or whatever and working towards it and i believe denver i might have that wrong but there were one or one or two other places that were looking around doing things towards defunding and you know it wasn't just minneapolis but they were the ones that were getting the most attention for it and so this was like an active conversation right and then of course quietly at the end of the year everywhere actually raised their funds towards yeah. the police, right? Yeah. You know, like nowhere they either raised or maintained the same budgets. But like watching like the kind of the level of conversation was because then the narrative became, look, we talked about defund the police and the crime got worse. But like, but everywhere yeah. we got more money. <laughs> so I don't even understand what happened. Because then we talked about all, then that was the narrative, right? Yeah. Crime reporting became oh, like yeah. super excessive. Mm-hmm. And so then it became defund the police doesn't work. But I'm like, you but didn't do it. Like you, you didn't, didn't do it. defund <laughs> Y'all didn't try police, that. right? And so the narrative became, okay, well, maybe we have to walk away from defund the police, right? Yeah. But I'm like, but we didn't actually do anything. <laughs> like nothing happened. Like no one was defunded. No one voted on anything. Like yeah. it happened nowhere. Like we're just working towards a conversation mm-hmm. about a vote, right? Mm-hmm. And so then they would go to activists and be like, listen, it, we have to make concessions just to get to the table. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I know you guys are abolitionists, but even just to get to the table, maybe we could talk about having the FUDs go to other services, but through <laughs> the police department. And, you know, I spoke to someone about this um, and they said, I think part of what is making them so, um, why people keep saying it's a messaging issue is that it is a messaging issue, right? But not in the way mm-hmm. that they're saying it, right? Mm. It's a messaging issue because defund the police is a phrase that holds mm. them accountable. You can you can say, you know, I yeah. believe that Black Lives Matter and, and, and feel like you accomplished something if you were literally the most baseline white person, right? Yeah. So I think with something like deep on the police, it makes someone recoil if they realize like, no, this is mm-hmm. it, right? Like yeah. there is, that's the threshold. You cannot it's- do anything around it. And so my understanding is like, you know, how at, like more like folks in activist circles, activists and mm-hmm. organizers themselves, like feel really uh, betrayed basically yeah. by by this. Does that do you feel like that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is accurate. And this happens consistently. It's not just mm. with the uh, defund the police. This is something that happens consistently when mm. something hits a crisis point. Right. Yeah. And so they feel like. 
they have to do this. Okay, we have to adopt this, you know, kind of language to show that, yes, this is such a crisis point. We realize we have to say this and acknowledge this and embrace it. But then when the pressure comes off, like there's enough, you know, visibility removed that the mainstream isn't going to be standing and protesting every day. Yeah. All of a sudden it's, let's embrace the softer language. You know, we can't do this. Incremental things at this point. And the second it's in, an incremental reform, it's done, right? Mm. The momentum is gone. You've lost mm. all your negotiating power. Um, yeah. A parallel movement for that, for example, is abolish ICE, the kids mm. in cages, you know, and then again with the um, the woman in the hospitals, and then again with the Haitians, um, you know, mm, at yeah. the border, right, getting deported. Three different moments that are flashpoint moments that each came away with abolish ICE. The first one was kind of the biggest mm -hmm. one with the kids in cages, right? Yeah. Um, I think that one is the most striking one because the kids were in cages in the Trump administration and that had people literally at the airport standing and like, yeah. you know, screaming yeah. and all of that. And that got people to be like, okay, abolish ICE, hashtags, making stickers. Yeah. Kids are still in cages, y'all. Yeah. Like that hasn't stopped, right? Like they're in what they call now like, <laughs> like training facilities or whatever, right? They're very much still in cages. Now, when we say kids are in cages as, you know, immigration justice advocates, people are like, well, you don't know because Biden's actually really trying to do oh. something. But and I'm like, that's interesting. <laughs> very fascinating. Like, if only he knew somebody in charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very fascinating and, and, and tragic and sad to watch one the, the, the pivot in opinion right yeah. and two um to see that like the momentum again like just disappear because once the momentum disappears then all of a sudden biden's momentum from needing to be forced to expand things like criminal bars yeah. um in immigration policy which criminal bars are very important for black immigrants right because saying like criminal bars are the things that will prevent someone from being able to become a permanent resident or have your green card mm -hmm. um, because of something like a jaywalking mm -hmm. ticket, right? You know? Yeah. Um, so, of course, that is inherently going to be anti-Black because it'll be like a Black immigrant in like a Black neighborhood like the Bronx will be the one mm -hmm. who gets stopped for jaywalking because of stop and frisk, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, it'll that'll be the thing that will like deter him from having the momentum to say no you have to actually handle black immigration issues right because where's the momentum now if people are not on top of it right you know yeah. and so that's kind of where we lose that one i just appreciate that answer because i think it even listening to you inspired the feeling that i kind of had when i was reading your thread before mm -hmm. um i want to make a bit of a confession in reading this thread i identified exactly what you said. I feel like, yeah. you know, watching, like, I, I I am not an activist by trade. But I think I actually probably, in the kind of in the group, in the constellation of folks you outlined, you know, of, like, you know, activists and organizers, um, kind of the media, obviously I'm adjacent to that it's too. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, the political class is one that I kind of, like, identified with. So mm -hmm. to give you some background on myself, I have actually worked on, I, I worked in politics for a little while, mostly on mm -hmm. campaigns. Um, from like like a marketing digital standpoint, mm -hmm. but like you know, I I helped to get a, a couple folks elected that I believed in, and <laughs> you know, uh, and I did that in spite of the fact that I don't have like a ton of faith in the electoral process. But you have but some I, faith. I, I do. Like I have enough that I yes, I have enough that I feel compelled to mm -hmm. vote and compelled mm -hmm. to like see that process through. Right. Um, so you know, to go, flash back to like 2020 on the way to today, you know, uh, when I saw this kind of coalition begin to form, um, you know, specifically of activists, media, you know, political class, seemingly working together 
using the same language, you know, mm-hmm. in theory for the same goal. I was fucking hyped. It was like a it was like a dream, you know. Right, right. Um, and I'm sad at how, you know, the folks who I said I identify with have cut and run. I guess, like, my question is that, you know, as an observer, it has seemed like the only way that some of these tenuous things have come together is through that coalition as, like, dirty as it was. And I guess, like, now that that has crumbled, like, is, do you think less change is possible as a result? I think, you know, you bring up a, a good point um, with with regards to just, like, how there has been very little that has come out of that coalition, but there have been some things. So I think about, for example, um, Alicia Garza, she created um, Mm -hmm. this one organization um, after she left BLM called Black Futures Lab, right? And with the money that she got out of to create Black Futures Lab, they have some of like the most robust data um, to get Mm -hmm. out of Black voting habits. They're like one of the only organizations in the country that has like a level of like, granular data like about why people vote um how black people vote and for what issues they vote for and like no one else gets that level of like detail to level that alicia's organization does so things like that are you know i think things that are really valuable um to to, you know actually for us to find value in and and explore we should be able to preserve and acknowledge that and and grow that with the resources that are available right Mm -hmm. um the data that sam Mm -hmm. has right you know that data is useful right we can use that data as a public resource to continue sam intended that to be a public resource right And, and use that to be able to understand you know how policing is is you know harmful to black communities and what the best policies are and what best practices should be and 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 continue to understand surveillance against us and and you know really get to continue to evolve against policing and as police departments continue to mature right um because you know that is going to be a continuing conversation as police budgets continue to expand um so that is not something mm-hmm. that's going to stop. And I think that is a model that we should continue to look at, right, as yeah. those databases continue to, you know, become bigger. And they look at things like predictive um, analytics for policing, yeah. which is continuing to be a thing, right? Yeah. Um, and look at surveillance policing, which is continuing to be a thing for, like, you know, facial recognition and ID.me and all those things. So, um, I think looking at those tools is not a bad thing, even if, you know, the way that we <laughs> all the fallout from it may have been a little dirty, but just even thinking about the fact that these should be available mm-hmm. things and more open source and that anybody should really be able to think through like, oh, these are the kinds of things that are most that you should be most concerned about in your neighborhood, right? How do we make this accessible, leverageable for the average person, for the you know, for public use and a common good? That, I mean, yeah, that's such again. This is why I ask, because I feel like I know I'm going to get a, a damn good answer from you. So, it, honestly, that 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 sounds right. It's like, you know, I we don't know how or when a coalition like that might form, or if a coalition <laughs> like that is going to, like, kind of cement itself again, or how ephemeral it might be. Mm-hmm. But I think that is a really great point of, you know, the... the the you know the things that were won were won and like those are those effects are going to continue to reverberate for actually all of those different um stakeholders that we called out and that that ultimately is is really positive on a larger point we've spent a lot of time like discussing like the many faults <laughs> of the moment that we're in right now but i wonder what do you see as a way out of that cycle or a way out of this dynamic there are a lot of good faith conversations to be had that we just mm-hmm. generally tend to miss with each other. Mm-hmm. And when we have them, mm-hmm. we have them way too late. 
And by that point, it's just like a conversation that of resentment, right? And mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate. It genuinely is. Um, because, for example, like I think there's a version of the New York bag issue that is not 10 years out, mm. but was like three years out, right? Mm. Where potentially, and I know, of course, there were like profiles that were done at the time because I've seen all of them or whatever, but like that could have potentially been a little bit more conciliatory if it was done sharper and like mm. more holistic at the time, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think they were foreseen at the time like it was going to get this big and who's yeah, going to have that level of foresight, right? Yeah. You know, um, so that, I, I mean, if you don't see that, of course, you don't think to think think this through, right? You know, um, and the reason why I say that is is largely because by this point, you know, if you're gonna sit, you know, at the table and think, well, this person is like a fraud ass bitch, yeah. right? And this person actually came with bad intents in the first place, right? Like there's there's no point like, you know, where you can meet in between to really like actually reconcile anything, right? You know, there are things that I actually like would give, for example, Patrice Grayson in the conversation around BLM that I don't think she's mm. really getting at this point. Like mm-hmm. I would give her grace on the fact that she, you know, does have a strong organizing mm-hmm. background, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I don't think she gets that highlighted enough, right? Like the Bus Riders Union in LA was like a very, very strong um, organizing union for LA and, you know, for working class people, right? You know, mm-hmm. especially out of the Marxist tradition. She really did mm-hmm. train in that in that practice, right? And I'm not, you know, saying that to like absolve her of anything, right? I think that still, you know, entitles everyone the inquiries that she's getting and she is entitled to, she should, and I hope she does respond to all the questions because I think she should, as the executive director, realize that even if she has an answer to every single thing, ultimately, if you've lost the faith of the people, then Mm. you have to step down, right? You know, it it just doesn't really matter whether or not you have an answer. If we could have had some of these conversations a lot earlier and had some of these thoroughbred conversations a lot earlier, even if ultimately it would be a split, it could have been a lot healthier of a split mm. than whatever is happening now within all these organizations, right? Where now the fracture just feels like irreparable and now the fracture feels like a somehow rendering a um, verdict on the ab- ability of Black people to form movements, right? Mm. As opposed to, no, you know, this is what happens when things become too mm. big to fail. And I think also people should realize that people organize every day. Like, people mm. organize locally every mm. single day. And you shouldn't think that the only way that people organize is the organizations that you see that are propped up by, you know, the you know, articles that you read that are viral on Twitter. Um, Not to say that um, that's the only reason why, you know, that you know about them, but I'm just saying that some of the best organizations that you may know are in your neighborhood. Also, some of the best organizations that you probably should participate Mm. are in your neighborhood. They will know about things that are critical to, like, national issues and also to, like, your daily life. Whatever that may be for you, right? You you figure that out and you build it out. I don't think that the only way to engage in, you know, organizing is – through the current pipelines that people know about. There are legacy organizations and there are younger organizations with these young kids who are building them all the time. Like my brother is always showing me these like 24 year olds who are out here (laughs) fucking shit up and they are not waiting for us. I just want to say thank you so much. Seriously. No problem. It's my pleasure. Some things. I learned some things. No, I always appreciate the invite guys.
We reached out to DeRay McKesson to offer another opportunity to respond to Ernest Owens and his reporting in the story, The Rise and Rupture of Campaign Zero. He responded to us with links to statements prepared by Campaign Zero and its board responding to Ernest's story and a page outlining the impact that Campaign Zero has had, according to the organization. The statement about Ernest's reporting characterizes the story as containing false accusations and goes on to address many of the story's main points. We've linked to both statements in our show notes. He also mentioned that, quote, New York Mag was supplied with our financial records, contact information for the board, the consultant that managed the board onboarding and recruitment process, and the staff from my mayoral campaign. It is my understanding that none of them were contacted. DeRay said that he did not push back on Ernest's ability to report the story, but he did note to New York Magazine leadership that he had doubts about Ernest's ability to be impartial. DeRay McKesson, or any one person aside, I think it's important to say that we don't have all the answers for how any one person should perform their activism. And it's also important to acknowledge that there are grassroots organizations that approach the struggles we talk about now in totally different ways than things like abolition, reform, or any of the strategies that we're all familiar with. Continued dialogue about how we all see the future is an important part of demanding the change that we all desire. But it's really useful and urgent to think about the way our actions will be received by the people we're supposed to be serving. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams and social producer Elise Ellis. Marcus Hom is our engineer, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love you all so much. Seriously, it's, it feels so good to be back with you. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds and never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.